All right, so today we are going to uh, be looking at the book of Exodus in our 40 minutes or so together. Um, We're going to do it in two halves, like we did the book of Genesis last week, Um, roughly half of the book and then half of the book as we we go through this. Um, There are a number of um, issues coming out of the video that we'll discuss, but then I got a couple others I added myself, so um, I think this um, should be a good time. All right, just click on the screen, come on the slide. Twice. All right, just check. Audio. The book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible. How's the volume? From the previous book of Genesis, which ended with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now, Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, had been elevated to second in command over Egypt, and he had saved his whole family from famine. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually Jacob dies there in Egypt, and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass, and the story of the Exodus begins. Now that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of the book, Israel's Exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video, we'll just focus on the first half, where centuries have passed, and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied, and they filled the land. Now, this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion, and so God chose Abraham's family as the vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. But the new Pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here, Pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor, and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile. Now Pharaoh, he is the worst character in the Bible so far. His kingdom epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. Pharaoh has so redefined good and evil according to his own interests, that even the murder of innocent children has become good to And so Egypt has become worse than Babylon from the book of Genesis. And so now Israel cries out for help against this new Babylon, and God responds. God first turns Pharaoh's evil upside down as an Israelite mother throws her boy into the Nile River, but in a basket. And so he floats safely right down into Pharaoh's own family. He's named Moses, and he grows up to eventually become the man that God will use to defeat Pharaoh's evil. In the famous story of the burning bush, God appears to Moses and commissions him to go to Pharaoh and order him to release the Israelites. And God says that he knows Pharaoh will resist, and so he will bring his judgment on Egypt in the form of plagues. Then God also says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And so, we're introduced into the next main part of the story, the confrontation between God and Pharaoh. Now, what does this mean, that God says he'll harden Pharaoh's heart? It's super important to read this section of the story really closely and in sequence. 
In Moses and Pharaoh's first encounter, we're told simply that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. There's no implication that God did anything. And so in response, God sends the first set of five plagues, each one confronting Pharaoh and one of his Egyptian gods. And each time, Moses offers a chance for Pharaoh to humble himself and to let the Israelites go. But after each plague, we're told that Pharaoh either hardened his heart or that his heart grew hard. He's doing this of his own will. And so, eventually, it's with the second set of five plagues that we begin to hear how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So the point of the story seems to be this. Even though God knew that Pharaoh would resist his will, God still offered him all these chances to do the right thing. But eventually, Pharaoh's evil reaches a point of no return. I mean, even his own advisors think that he's lost his mind. And it's at that point that God takes over and bends Pharaoh's evil towards his own redemptive purposes. God lures Pharaoh into his own destruction as he saves his people, which is what happens next. With the final plague, it's the night of Passover, and God turns the tables on Pharaoh. Just as he killed the sons of the Israelites, so God will kill the firstborn in Egypt with a final plague. But unlike Pharaoh, God provides a means of escape through the blood of the Lamb. And here the story stops and introduces us in detail to the annual Israelite ritual of Passover. On the night before Israel left Egypt, they sacrificed a young spotless lamb and painted its blood on the doorframe of their house. And when the divine plague came over Egypt, the houses covered with the blood of the lamb were passed over and the sun spared. And so every year since, the Israelites have reenacted that night to remember and to celebrate God's justice and but Pharaoh, because of his pride and rebellion, he loses his own son. And he's compelled to finally let the Israelites go free. And so the Israelite slaves make their exodus from Egypt. But no sooner do they leave that Pharaoh changes his mind. And he gathers his army and chases after the Israelites for a final showdown. As the Israelites pass through the waters of the sea safely, Pharaoh charges towards his own Israel. The Exodus story concludes with the first song of praise in the Bible. It's called the Song of the Sea. And the final line declares that the Lord reigns as king. And then the song retells in poetry what the story of God's kingdom is all about. It's about how God is on a mission to confront evil in his world and to redeem those who are enslaved to evil. God is going to bring his people into the promised land where his divine presence will live among them. This story is what it looks like when God becomes king over his people. <clears throat> so after the Israelites sing their song, the story takes a sharp turn. The Israelites are trekking through the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai, and they're hungry, they're thirsty, and they start criticizing Moses and God for even rescuing them. They say they long for the good old days in Egypt. It's crazy. So God graciously provides food and water for Israel in the wilderness, but these stories, they cast a dark shadow. And we begin to wonder, could it be that Israel's heart is just as hard as Pharaoh's? We shall see. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Exodus. <coughs> okay, so what did you hear in this video? <coughs> Not a trick question. <laughs> 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 one, one thing is, you know, I thought it was interesting. 
specifically brings out the hardening material for our person. If Pharaoh do it on his own, or God do it, that's what I've got too yeah, I found that interesting too, and I've never seen that before. That there is, and I, I went back this morning and reread it, and it does describe it differently. Um, as you go down through the different plagues, let me find it real quickly, just to show you I didn't make all this up this time. Um, but as you go down through there and you read. Um, Moses is saying, I'm not eloquent, da-da-da-da, he gets to the plagues. So, in the chapter 8, the third plague, it says, Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he would not listen. He gets down to the fourth plague, and it says, uh, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he did not let the people go. He gets down to the fifth plague, and he says, The heart of Pharaoh was hardened. It's like a transition. And then you get down further, and it says, And God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There was a transition. I hadn't, I hadn't seen that before until I heard this the video describing that. Um, now, this is a problem that let's not, let's not brush over. This is still a problematic passage. Where do we hear it again? This is Judas. a trick question. Judas. Roma, well, we're Judas. Romans 9. Paul's writing to the Romans, and he brings up the same example. Um, so let me turn over to Romans 9. So Romans 9, my, the paragraph heading that I have at the beginning of Romans 9 is God's sovereign choice. And first he's going through and he's saying, um, I'm in verse, verse 11, and he's describing how God chose people. Even though they weren't born, they hadn't done anything good or bad, but for God's own purpose... He elected some people not because of their works, but because he called them. He selected them to do his purpose, to move forward his mission, etc. He says then in verse 14, what do we say then? Is God unjust? I mean, he hits this thing head on uh, in, in chapter um, 9 of Romans. And then right on verse 17 of Romans 9, Pharaoh. And he says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, I will harden who I will harden. So God chose to harden Pharaoh. And I like the transition he talked about earlier, that Pharaoh was on this course um, anyway. But there's a decision where God says, I'm, I'm going to use him for my purpose. Um, and then Paul defends God. So what if God, desiring to show his wrath, makes some to let his power be known for destruction and others for his salvation? And what do we do with this? Well, there's an interesting... Like, if anybody's reading the chronological Bible, this, this morning's reading was the story of Nahum. He was a Syrian army officer. And a little cat, he had leprosy. 
and a little captive Israelite girl says, if you could only go down and see the prophet back in Israel, you could be cleansed. And Naaman goes down there, and the prophet does not even come out of his house. Yeah, didn't speak to him. He yeah. sends a message out. Go dip seven times in the River Jordan. Naaman's heart at first was hardened. He was furious that he wasn't told to do something great and wonderful or come out and wave a magic wand over him or something. And yet one of his officers said, well, wait a second. It's a pretty simple thing he asked you to do. And he relented, dipped, and he was clean. I see this, and it's a fine line, but the nature of God is essentially good. So when you read this, you've got to figure out what it means. And I think Pharaoh had his chances. He had ten chances. Yeah. That God knew his nature, though. His tendency was to be puffed up and react wrong. I mean, you know, who among us, you know, who can tell me what to do? Who can tell me what to do? Other thoughts. I think you're right. I think you're right on. Because he said, this is a simple task. Just do what he asked you to do. Um, bend your heart. <clears throat> Other thoughts? Terry, yeah. I was thinking through there are times when I can write to the parent when they have to find the hearts. <laughs> <laughs> because you may be enabling somebody by just Help, help, help. And sometimes you have to harden your heart and you say, that's enough, this is not helping anymore. And uh, so I think that you know, that's just part of doing the right thing and doing the most loving thing. God the ultimate leader loves Pharaoh, but there came a time when he just had to say, that's it. Yeah, there's my grandmother had a phrase about hard times, that you have to steal your heart. Hmm. As the metal. Steal. You have to steal your heart to go through. I've forgotten it until you started telling that story. Um, but let's, let me draw you a picture. Um, my reformed thinking is coming out. Imagine that this is all the people in the world. And our Bible tells us that they are sinners. And there were times, would, would God be just if he decided to just say, forget it, I'm going to start over, they're sinners. Would he be just? And the Old Testament's answer is, yes, he would. And so, if he says, I'm going to select some, and I'm going to select others, so that my purpose is done. So that I move creation and history in the direction I want it to be in. Would he be just? And Paul's answer in Romans 9 is, yes, he would. Because, as Nan said, he's a loving, caring God trying to move all of humanity and creation towards his loving purpose and his end. But there are times when he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And as I read both the Old Testament 
and Romans 9, that's what I see in there. John. I, I think if list of the sermons that we've been hearing, I think there's a lot of parallel between Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh. I mean, here's a guy that he doesn't know God. He has a penalty of God that he worships, and here's this strange God coming in and telling him, let all your work, construction workers go. Hey, he's got to have somebody to work. He's not going to just turn them loose. Yeah, wreck his For economy. somebody that he doesn't yeah. know, he has to be taught who God is. And that was the place. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Usually when we talk about hardening heart, it's this picture of God going inside their psyche and deleting decision making and and forcing Pharaoh to do something. I guess I would think about it more like John is saying that God was presenting him with decisions, teaching him about God, and that was so uh, distasteful, maybe that's not strong enough, to Pharaoh that it hardened his heart. Uh, that God hardened his heart by being God, not by controlling and that's very consistent with, if you look at Paul in Romans 1, he, it says he gave them over. Yeah. That's the phrase. And so it's not that God went in and made them something that they didn't want to be. He just gave them over to the path they had taken, um, and which resulted in consequences for sin. Well, that what well, they just um, mentioned that <coughs> God was revealing himself to Pharaoh, but it had been 400 years since the people of Israel had direct contact with God. And I think that they needed to be reminded of you know, who God was, yeah. who God is. And I think the plagues helped them remember. Yeah. Them a, a, a way of looking. I think it was helpful to them as well. I agree. I have Becky. And I think in, in wrestling with this about God hardening his heart and his purpose, one thing I keep seeing is that God will use our hearts whether we soften them or harden them. If you look at what Mordecai said to Esther, you know, she had the choice of doing what she did or not. Yeah. And the outcome was going to be the same. And I think we have the opportunity to either be part of God's will uh, but in a good way, or yeah. but we're, we're not going to stop His will. So a reminder of that situation, Mordecai's message to her was... Uh, maybe God raised you up for this day to save your people. But if not, He'll raise somebody else up. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not that the history is, I think, determined and rigid and behavioristic and all that, but God has a plan, and He's going to get Himself there. He's going to move history there. Um, and we'll be a part of it one way or the other. And we'll be a part of it one way or another. In, in light of that, moving toward good, we also see in the story the repetition of rebellion against God time and time again throughout the reading of the Old Testament, even yeah. into our day, present day. We, that that motion is, in, is set 
into our history. It is. It's going to take him to get us there. Um, All right, one more quick point I want to make um, before I need to show this second video. And that's back in Exodus about the burning bush. Now, here's what I like about the burning bush. I've always thought, um, how do I know God's will? You know, I've prayed about it. I want to go to college. I want to do this. Should I take this job? Should I do that? How do I know God's will? And Moses asked God that question at the burning bush. He goes, how, how, will you give me a sign? What will be that sign? And God's answer I find disturbing. This is uh, chapter 3 of Exodus. And his answer is, when it's all over, I'll meet you back here. <laughs> that was his answer. He didn't say to him, this is my will, I'm showing you. He's saying, go to Egypt. When you're done, I'll meet you here. And then you'll know. That'll be your sign. He couldn't have met him there if he had his head chopped off. No, that's true. I hadn't put it in quite that graphic, but you're right. Yeah. So he was saying, like I've experienced, when it's over and done, I can look back and I can see what God has done for me. It's a, it's, that's my experience, is there's a look back. And I like that as part of the burning bush. All right, we need to see our second Chapters 1 through 18, which tell the foundational story of how God read. I'm just going to do a small picture. Um, yeah, try that. The book of Exodus. In the first video, we explore chapter. It stops me when I do it. Go to slide, slide. Yeah. The book of Exodus. I'm going with In this. the first video, we explored chapters 1 through 18, which tells the foundational story of how God rescued the enslaved Israelites by confronting and defeating Pharaoh, while offering a way of escape through the blood of the Passover land. God then delivered his people by bringing them through the waters of the sea and then into the wilderness, where, surprisingly, they grumbled and complained. Now, the second half of the book of Exodus opens as Moses leads Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai, where God invites the nation of Israel to enter into a covenant relationship. And here we reach another key moment in the biblical storyline, because this is picking up and developing God's promise to Abraham. So remember, from the book of Genesis, God promised that through Abraham's family, somehow he would restore his blessing to all of the nations. And here we find out more. God says that if Israel obeys the terms of the covenant, 
They will be so shaped by God's laws and teaching and justice that they will become a kingdom of priests, which means that they will become God's representatives and show all of the other nations what God is truly like. Now the people of Israel eagerly accept the offer, and so God's presence appears right on the top of Mount Sinai in the form of cloud and lightning and thunder. And Moses goes up as their representative, and God opens with the basic terms of the covenant, the famous Ten Commandments. These are like the basic terms of the agreement, how the Israelites and God are going to relate to each other. And then after this come another collection of commands which fill out the first ten in more detail. There are laws about Israel's worship, about social justice, how they are to live together, all shaping Israel into a nation of justice and generosity that's different from the other nations. So Moses writes down all of these laws, and he brings them down to the people who, again, eagerly agree to enter into this covenant of God. And once they do so, God takes the relationship forward another step. He tells Moses that he wants his holy, divine, and good presence to come and dwell right in the midst of Israel which develops another aspect of God's covenant promises. So remember, after humanity's rebellion in the garden, it was access to God's presence that was lost. But now it's through the family of Abraham that God's presence is becoming once again accessible through this covenant relationship, and first with Israel, and then somehow one day to all nations. So what follows are seven chapters of detailed architectural blueprints about this sacred tent called the tabernacle. There's an outer courtyard with an altar, and then in the center there's a tent that has an outer room and then an inner room. And then inside the inner room, which is called the most holy space, is a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And there's angelic creatures over the top of it. It's the hot spot of God's presence. Now there's lots of detail in these chapters, and it's important to know that every piece has some kind of symbolic value. All of the flowers, the angels, the gold, and the jewels, it all echoes back to the Garden of Eden, the place where God and humans lived together in intimacy. And so the tabernacle is like a portable Eden, so to speak. It's the place where God and Israel can live together in peace. At least in theory, because right here, something goes really, really wrong. Israel breaks the covenant. As Moses is up on the mountain receiving the blueprints for the tabernacle, down below at the camp, the Israelites, they're losing patience. And so they ask Moses' brother Aaron to make for them a golden calf idol so they can worship it as the God who saved them out of slavery in Egypt. Now God's presence, it's right there on top of the mountain. They can see it. But here they are below, breaking the first two commands of the covenant they just agreed to. No other gods and no idols. Now what follows is really important. God knows what's happening down below. And so he first invites Moses into his own anger and pain. And he tells Moses what he wants to do, just to wipe Israel out. But Moses intercedes by appealing to God's character. He says, first of all, destroying Israel would be going back on your covenant promises to Abraham. And then Moses appeals to God's reputation among the nations. What would they think if they see you destroying your own And so God accepts Moses' intercession, and he relents. While he does bring his judgment on those who instigated the idolatry, he forgives the nation as a whole and promises to renew his covenant. And it's right here, at this point in the story, that God, for the first time, describes his own character to Moses. He says, the Lord is merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, abounding in covenant faithfulness. He forgives sin, but he will not leave the wicked unpunished. 
So we have this tension. God is full of mercy, but also he must deal with evil if he claims to be good. And above all, God is faithful to his promises, even though it means, he knows, he's committing himself to a people who are utterly faithless. And so after renewing the covenant with Israel, God commissions Moses to go ahead and build the tabernacle. And once again, we get five long chapters describing in detail the construction of the tabernacle. And it all comes together in the final chapter, where the tabernacle's finished. God's glorious divine presence comes and hovers over the tent, and our hopes are high. And so Moses, he goes right up to enter into the tent, and he can't. He actually can't go in, and that's how the book ends. It's really surprising, but not really if you think about it. You can see now how much Israel's sin has damaged the relationship with God in more ways than we realize. So the book opened, remember, with Pharaoh's evil, threatening Israel and threatening God's covenant promise. But now, as the book ends, Israel has become its own worst enemy. It's their sin that's threatening the future of the covenant. And so the question, as the book closes, is how is God going to reconcile this conflict between his holiness and his goodness and his presence with the sinful corruption of his own covenant people? The solution to that problem is what the next book is about, but for now... That's the book of Exodus. Okay, so I want um, to teach you how to think like a Puritan. There's lots of great Puritans if you want to go back and read some of those guys. My favorite's a guy named John Owen, but um, Puritans look back at the Old Testament and read the Old Testament to Christ all the time. They see patterns. They see types. They see images. They see, they see stories that are the same stories that came uh, uh, that for, were fulfilled in Jesus. And so I want you to think about this video and think about the a Puritan approach to these kinds of things. One of them is the tabernacle. The tabernacle, and let me make an, an argument from um, a continuity argument. Continuity is God is the same. He reveals himself more and more and more until completely in Christ, but it doesn't, he doesn't change in who he is. And we're given this picture of the tabernacle as an illustration of of Him, God, and the path to Him as a pattern. And then over in the New Testament, book of Hebrews in particular, we're told that that pattern in the tabernacle is the real tabernacle is in heaven. And so it's not just a memorial, it's not just a worship uh, liturgy, it is a reflection of what's going on in the presence of God Himself. And here's, here's what it looks like. And so let me be a Puritan and walk our path from the door up here, up in. So we start... We enter our journey to God through blood. Blood of Jesus. We good? We enter it through water. So far, so good? 
baptism, washing, okay? We enter it through the bread. We enter it through the light of the word. We enter it through the incense of prayer. Prayers are, incense is called prayers in the book of Revelation. All right, I'm not, I'm not making all of this up. I may fill in some gaps. But you see the pattern. So a Puritan, um, we're talking Puritans that came over to the United, formed the United States, Puritans. That's how they would read this. That this is a journey to God that has not changed. We have to enter through blood. We have to have the washing. We enter through prayer. And the book of Hebrews says, you know, the, the curtain, the veil, has been torn down. We can enter now in through prayer directly to God ourselves. And so we have in the book of Exodus the, the revelation of that pattern, that journey, that process, that um, access that we have to God. Let me stop. Thoughts? Comments? Questions? I taught this once a long, long time ago. And I mixed up some of the order of some of these objects. I was just drawing on the board and having a great time. It was pointed out to me that I had them out of order. So... I got this off the internet, so it must be true. <laughs> Not to scale. Not to scale. No, no, no. Not to scale. I had to squish it to get it on my on my slide here, actually. Um, Alright, thoughts on that? You good with that? I mean, the, as much as Puritans are Puritans, and it's kind of an old way of reading things and seeing things, I think they had something. You know, they got pretty flowery, but I think they had something about how God revealed Himself and how we can walk that path um, to Him. Uh, New Testament has the same metaphor when it talks about going through the Red Sea of baptism and then the, the Christian walk, the journey to the Promised Land. I mean, so they saw these images. I just think it's rich when you think about um, how God showed Himself. Uh, let me go to this next one. All right, I also like the idea of Moses interceding at this point and, um, and God revealing Himself and saying, this is who I am. I'm merciful, I'm slow to anger. Um, there is forgiveness, but I'm not giving up the justice. Now, that's a, that's a Paul phrase. Um, Paul says, I am just and the justifier. I do both. So I don't, I don't stop being God and being just, but I'm also the source of justification for you. Uh, and so that's how he does both through Christ. But his justice is merciful. His justice is merciful. He wants us to be just. Yes, he does. Justice and mercy usually appear in the same sentences. Yeah. A lot of, what in Isaiah? Uh, when he wants, I, I want mercy, I want justice. He wants us to be merciful and do justice. Yes. Yeah. Because he's 
the just God who is merciful. I agree. You go before him and he says, here's all you did, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Other thoughts? Could you please Oh my, no one has ever said that to me. Sandy said that that, that there's a picture of God there who is just and merciful. And he expects us to be merciful in the way we deal with each other and with peace with people and to promote or uh, create justice in the world as we go. That's that fair? Yeah, but our justice is also to be merciful. Yes, our justice is to be merciful, but the two are, are uh, com- I don't know, combined one thing. Yes. Which is a tough balance. Which is a tough balance. Yeah, it is a tough balance. And there is, I mean, there's, it's a tough balance. Because you think of those two concepts so separately. <coughs> Um, merciful overlooks one, justice doesn't is a merciful one, you know, it is tough though. And, and that's, and that to me is the, if you read through that first part of Romans where Paul says um, that God is both just and the justifier, um, it, it took the death of Christ to be the just, justifier. And so it wasn't that sin wasn't paid for. Or that he overlooked it. It was painful work by his son, which then brought mercy uh, through that. So I mean that's that's Paul's description, but he says, yes, God is just and justifier. And I'm sorry, I don't remember which chapter right away, but I'll put it up. It seems like we're trying to do that now in the prison yeah, I think so too. I think we're trying to make that practical application. Other thoughts? Maybe the balance between the two is kind of in Micah 6 8, where we're told that what the Lord requires is to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Yeah. And I think that but when we put ourselves in a position of humility, I think maybe we're we may be better able to balance those two. Yeah, I heard somebody say once, I never forget that I am a man who's been forgiven much. And that puts you in that humble position to, to do that. All right, let's close with a prayer. Lord God Almighty, thank you for revealing yourself to us, for having the patience and the love and the mercy to walk with us, lead us, and teach us. And we pray through the risen Christ. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.